You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Mike Rogers, a former Republican member of Congress representing Michigan's 8th Congressional District. He's also a former officer in the United States Army and FBI Special Agent. While in the U.S. House of Representatives, he chaired the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He's now become, uh, gone to a more noble task. Uh, he's now a highly sought-after expert on national security issues, in intelligence affairs, and cybersecurity policy. He advises multiple boards on academic institutions, working to enhance America's strength and security. And he's a regular CNN national security commentator, the host of CNN's Declassified, and regularly contributes to major print outlets such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to SpyCast. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. So I, I always want to ask this question to anyone who's had a career in the business, especially multiple careers in your case, right? You're a U.S. Army officer. You were a member of the FBI, a member of Congress. Uh, did you grow up wanting to be an FBI agent? I mean, a lot of people, like, as kids, they just wanted to be either a G-man or a spook or something like that. Was that something that you used the Army to get to, or did you want to be an Army officer? What, what did you want to be when you grew up? Yeah, great question. I, I actually wasn't quite sure until I got to high school. And I found on the career day, and back then, you know, pamphlets, I don't know, maybe many of your listeners are, don't know what that is, right? But they would have these racks of careers, accountant or funeral director or, you know, fill in the blank. And, you know, I was kind of moving the rack, and the teacher asked me to move the desk. So I moved the desk, and laying on the floor was an old FBI pamphlet. There wasn't any other ones in the rack. And I picked it up, and I read it, and I thought, that's it. That's what I want to do. I mean, I just knew it. And so I was a sophomore in high school and really set my sights on trying to be uh, accepted as a special agent of the FBI and was fortunate enough to do that. And one of the ways, this was one of those quirky things happens in life. One of my close friends in high school, his father was the head of the DEA in the Detroit office in Michigan. And so I started talking to him about law enforcement and, you know, what that meant and uh, you know, should I do the DEA thing? I was just trying to be polite. I didn't want to be a DEA agent. Um, and uh, he really did talk me into going to the FBI. So there's just more things to do. It's just kind of what you, you think you want to do is just in talking to you. And I just got set on that track. And he's the one that said, you know what? You ought to think about joining the military. You're not going to get in right out of college. Right. Uh, it's great experience. You get to serve your country. Uh, and when you're done, you're a little more seasoned, and the FBI is looking for folks who are a little more seasoned. And I'm sure you ask this question all the time by anyone who's learned that you were an FBI special agent. Is that the same advice you give today, or has it changed so dramatically that there's a different way of trying to get into the FBI? Well, I mean, there are different ways to get in. I mean, you know, linguists, uh, you know, computer forensics, you could be, you know— right out of college, I think, and get in if you have the right set of credentials. So there are different ways to get in. I still think the best agents are those who have a little seasoning. You know, I always tell folks, 
do something different. I don't care what it is. I don't care if you want to be a teacher, a butcher. I don't care. Get your degree. Go do it. Be really good at it. And then apply to the FBI. You'll be a better, I think you'll be a better FBI agent. Yeah, there aren't a lot of 22-year-olds right out of college that you want kind of having that kind of responsibility. <laughs> it is a big responsibility, yeah. right? You flash those credentials. I mean, people's lives flash in front of their eyes. Mm -hmm. And you want to have people who understand the responsibility of what that badge means. And it, it did mean a lot. It meant to me you know, every single day I carried it. And it was a great privilege and honor. And I loved every, can't believe they paid me to do <laughs> it, to chase gangsters like Johnny Apes, Monteleone, and Joey No Nose DeFranzo. Right. I mean, talk about all of you those know, guys. The old school picture of the FBI is is running down the mob, and that's exactly what you got a chance to do. Is I to did. I, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to cho uh, chase Soviet spies or chase gangsters, uh, the traditional Italian mafia. Uh, I mean, this is the '80s, so um, I got really fortunate. I did well enough in my class. I got uh, the assignment in Chicago. Uh, I got assigned to the organized crime squad there, and like I said, I just had a ball. I mean, it was more fun than you're allowed to have in your, uh, you know, wearing your suit and badge. What made you make the decision to transition to run for Congress? I mean, that, a lot of people, I think, are out, you know, aren't in the D.C. environment, think it's kind of just a, you know what, I'm going to run for Congress. And But there's a lot going on when you finally make the decision because— you're going to upend your family. If you don't move them here, it means you're not going to see them very often. You're mm -hmm. maybe travel back on weekends. You know, your your approval rating goes from being a pretty good guy to a member of Congress. There's a lot of decision making involved in making that transition. You said yourself, you loved every day you worked at the FBI. Did why take that leap and run for Congress? You know, the um, AI again. I did love the FBI. I broke a pretty good case there. It ended up being a pretty large case there. The mayor of a town called Cicero went to prison. The police chief, they were running. Uh, the organized crime family was basically running the town. A couple of uh, mob lieutenants ended up going to jail. They were running all the strip clubs. That's how I got in interested in in uh, the case, it would, they were clearly a protected enterprise in the city, and that started a whole series of events that, that led to this big case. So once all that was kind of filtering through and getting there, I had always seen politics as an honorable thing. My parents would, you know, go and run for the county commission and spend a couple of terms and then get off the county commission and go do something else. And my father would go and run and be the township supervisor and stop being the township supervisor and do his profession. And so I looked at that as an honorable thing, as community service. And I saw with the public corruption I witnessed in that FBI case, I thought, you know, I've, you know, I've seen this side of it. I've seen the, the kind of reactive side of law enforcement. And again, I loved every minute of it. Uh, going through the, ca the case prosecution phase, I'm going to tell you, uh, it's like watching paint dry. Yeah. Don't tell your friends in the legal <laughs> business. Um, and I thought, I, I just, uh, that, by the way, one of the cases took something like nine years to fully adjudicate. I mean, nine years working on the same case uh, after all the fun stuff's done, right? Right. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to try this. I'm going to, I just got a crazy notion. It really was not well thought through. Um, matter of fact, I'm out campaigning one day. And I see, and I, I really didn't know what I was doing, right? I mean, honestly, I just decided, I ran for the state Senate before I ran for U.S. Congress. I had to resign my credentials. One of the hardest things... I really think I've ever done. I, you know, I thought through it. I thought, yeah, I can do this. And of course, talked to the, you know, the boss guys and said, hey, I'd, boy, if this doesn't work out, boy, I'd sure like to be an FBI agent. <laughs> uh, you know, they gave me the, the, you know, what a knucklehead you are. But okay, you know, your record's good. You, you, you know, you, if everything is, you know, if they're hiring, basically, you'll, right. you'll be in good shape. And so I decided I'm going to go do this. And then I would walk in that last day and put those credentials on the desk. And I thought, my, all the work that I put in. Uh, not only in the job, but to get the job and what that meant to me. It was, it was a big deal. It was an emotional moment for me. It caught up to me in the office that day. So I go out, I run, and I had your experience. I get there, you know, and I'm thinking, well, I'm an FBI guy. Everybody loves FBI guys, don't they? And I'm running for office, and I walked in, and I was doing a little campaigning in a uh, bowling alley. And this was about day three, right? So you think about it. On Friday, I'm an FBI agent behind the bushes taking someone's picture. On Monday, I'm a candidate for office. I'm in front of the bushes getting my picture taken, right? right? I mean, a complete change of life. And I get in there, and the guy basically starts going off about, you know, what a rotten crook, uh, horrible crook I am, and, you know, wanting to be in politics, and, <laughs> you know, you're stealing this and stealing that. And I was a little taken aback for it. Of course, in the old days, you bow up a little bit like, right. okay, pal, you want to rumble. 
So, and I walked out of there and went, my God, I hope I'm doing the right thing. Right. Um, I got through it. It was a fantastic experience. I love the people I represented. I got to represent them uh, in the state Senate in Michigan, which was a great, great experience. Um, and then the, the, the House seat uh, opened up, and I you know, decided to take that leap as well, just because I was interested in the federal and the national issues right. and security issues, that, that kind of thing. Um, and again, crazy, I got in. Everyone told me I was going to lose. It's it just not my time or my seat. Uh, or, you know, it was a Democrat year. I was a Republican running as a Republican. And I <laughs> went through the whole process um, and basically won by 111 votes. It was the closest race in the country but that year. Those races, Congress. I mean, you, you know, when you my vote doesn't count. Well, oh my God, yeah. yeah. Well, 53 of you or whatever, yeah. it was, you know, 52 <laughs> of you. So I, I, when I was basically, uh, you know, shouldn't have won at one point yeah. in the evening we were ready to concede the numbers were so off and uh, it just worked out we just eked by and so by morning i was a member of congress which was just shocking um and again had a great run a great experience you know it's not it's really a way of life most people think you're just going to go and be a congressman and it's great and you give a few speeches and go home and that's just not the life of a, of well, a member that's of something i was surprised about when when i moved up here and kind of got involved in this to a degree is it's like, oh, they work three days a week and then go home for a four-day weekend. No, no. No, they're working every minute. They're back at home. That's mm -hmm. when they're doing district days. And that's exactly. why, I mean, it's, you know, there, there's a reason they all age 20 years in the two years. It's unbelievable. There. It just this never stops, yeah. right? And, and, it, and I did notice it just got meaner and less polite along the way. So, you know, before you would be out at, the, at a restaurant back home with your family and people might, you know, tip their hand or say hi. Um, you know, toward the end there, people would come up to the table and yell and scream. And, you know, your family's sitting there and your young kids. And you're right. thinking, what in God's green earth am I doing here? Uh, and same with the town hall meetings. I just saw it get a little bit meaner, a little bit more nasty. And I, I, that, that to me is a very, very unfortunate. Uh, you know, I think we'll get the government that we get out of this place will be about as good as the pressure you put on right. it on the outside. And I don't mean in pressure and advocating your position. I mean the meanness yeah. uh, of the sport of politics these days just does, you know, seems a little distasteful for me. Well, you, you rose up to very high levels. You spent four years as HIPSI chair starting in 2011. Um, I, I want to ask you, you have a background in military and law enforcement. As we talked about, you weren't chasing Russian spies. You're chasing mobsters. Intelligence is incredibly complicated mm. as the world is learning you know, more in the last couple of years. How steep was the learning curve? getting up to speed and intelligence issues when you first got on HIPSI. Yeah, so I got on in 2004. I had a genuine right. interest in it anyway. And what I learned about the counterterrorism uh, issues that were going on at the time, it's a lot like organized crime. So organized crime is an intelligence-based investigation, right? I know who the bad guys are. Now I just have to figure out what they're doing and how they're doing it, and can we catch them doing it uh, in a way that puts them in jail, right? That's really the way those investigations go. You work assets, you work sources, it takes time, you have good days and bad days, all of those things, right? And so when you get in, I, to me it was the, being an FBI guy was the best experience mm -hmm. ever to show up on that committee. I didn't go in with any preconceived notions. I started in 2004, and what I decided to do as a new member of the committee is I was going to learn everything. I was going to take briefings on everything. And this is, gets lost in the halls of Congress. Imagine the incredible opportunity to be able to pick up the phone and say, I want to know how this Operation X ran here. How did you get a piece of information on the Afghan-Pakistan border? How did it get processed? How did it come back through the system? And how did it end up in a brief or actionable intelligence? I could do that every day if I wanted. And it is an incredible uh, opportunity. Most people didn't take advantage of it. Uh, they'd go down and do the briefings and go off and do other things. Not me. I, I spent all my time talking to a lot of people. Right. I learned about the space portion, which was my weakest area. I didn't know a lot about the space uh, side of the intelligence business. So I spent a few years just getting to know the nomenclature of everything that was up flying in space, why we do it, what it means, all the, the technical suites that go on, what does it mean to have to take something off and put something on, all of that. And so I looked at my first few years as my master's degree in intelligence uh, because I needed to learn it all. And, uh, you know, again, I thought it was a fantastic experience, but it takes time and effort. You get no credit for it back home. I guess you shouldn't. Uh, you don't want to be talking about it. But it was really, really invaluable. And it prepped me, I think, to be chairman 
uh, by the time I was on for six years, and I learned, I used every bit of that to learn the intelligence business from uh, stem to stern. Did you talk to former HIPSI chairs? Because being a chair of HIPSI or armed services or foreign relations is different than being the chair of something else because you're part of the gang of eight, you're part of the gang of four. There's, there's more responsibility. There's more kind of insider information than other places where only others that have done the job before you might understand how it goes. Is there a kind of a passing down the torch from HIPSI chair to HIPSI chair? Yes and no. I mean, there is some of that. Um, you have to be willing to get it uh, in order to get that brief. I certainly was. I talked to both Republicans and Democrat uh, chairs in the past and just asked how they did it. it. It's the oddest thing between in this is that it is very personality driven. It's the chairman really sets the agenda. And I sat down with my ranking member, Dutch Ruppersberger, a member, uh, member of Congress from Maryland. And we just decided, he was a former prosecutor, I was a former FBI guy, like, listen, there's, we can do this. Let's put national security first. Let's t strip out all the partisan stuff that has stopped the committee from functioning very well and get back to the business of, of genuine oversight of the 17 intelligence agencies. And we did that. We were partner. We, I, I always never called them a ranking member. We we're, were called each other partners in this process. And it, we got along famously. And so I found that that was my method. And I watched other chairmen. I asked how they did things. And I had a different, you know, being, an, again, an FBI guy, I pretty much know when someone's blowing smoke up my skirt. And I could get to there pretty quickly. And I used to, uh, told the, the, all of the agencies in the beginning, listen, my goal as chairman is to never have to issue a subpoena. Now, I will. And so when you need to understand something, when you tell me and I ask for something and the answer is no, that's just the long way to yes. So we're going to either work this out or, or we're going to have miserable experiences. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, a lot has been written about the current working relationship between the intelligence community and HIPSI. Um, how would you describe your working relationship with people like the DNI, with the DCIA, with NSA? Like, you know, that kind of one-on-one, -on -one, because there is, you know, we watch public hearings, but that's like one-tenth of one-tenth of percent of what we actually, what's actually going on in HIPSI. There's a lot of one-on-one, -on -one, sitting in offices, talking, talking to staffers, talking to under, you know, assistant directors, things. How does that relationship work when you were chair? Uh, well, I made it work, and so I developed a relationship. Here was the good news. Part of the importance, and I, I tried to tell my fellow members of Congress this when I was there, and even now, the one reason I think that Dutch and I were so successful at the t when the time when we were there is that we said we will have a budget authorization every single year. We will go over line by line and dollar by dollar, and then we're going to make sure that those resources are aligned with the problem sets of which we're asking the intelligence community to do. And you know, the unclassified budget's about $70 billion. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it was a massive amount of money. And that helped, I think, give us credibility in the community. We meant business, we're serious. By the way, we have this budget that we can uh, you know, hopefully work with you, uh, but if not, we can beat you with it if we need to, and we never wanted to do that. Um, and it was incredibly helpful. So we got the trust of the community, and over time, it wasn't antagonistic. I, you know, it was never, I'm gonna show up and try to catch you doing something wrong. It was, hey, we're showing up, let's find out what you're doing. Uh, do you have all the authorities you need? Do you have all the money that you need? Uh, and if something goes wrong and we're supporting you when the lights are off, I guarantee you as chairman that when the, if the lights come on, I'll be with you as well. And that went a long way to fix so many of the problems that you see, I think, happening today and happening before. You know, if you want to go there to find them doing something wrong and beat them publicly and thump your chest that you're the only guy that cares about America or the Constitution, right. guess what? It's going to be dysfunctional. And I think that's what happened. We didn't want to do that. We wanted a real functioning oversight body that we thought brought benefit to the intelligence community, and we think... I think made the community better. And I think if you talk to people in it, they would agree that that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I'm wondering how much history did you guys focus on? I mean, you look at kind of the founding of the, the committee itself after Church and Pike and even some of the hiccups along the way, like Iran-Contra and in the 90s and some of these ebbs and flows of the relationship between the community and the, the committee, the idea of oversight, right? I, did you find that uh, history was a guide to kind of how to do this? Because... Maybe this was innate. Maybe you sat down with Dutch Rubersberger and said, this is the best way to do that. But did you kind of say, look, let's avoid the crap that people have run into in the past, that, that, you know, the real problems that oversight or lack of has led to, and let's do this the right way? 
Um, it was probably a combination of both. We had both been on the committee and saw some, I think, horrific behavior by members, even in classified setting, that I was mortified by. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thought, boy, if I ever had the opportunity, I'd never run the committee this way. I just won't let it happen. And so when we got together, I think we had both come to the same conclusion. And so history is certainly a driving force in that. And even, you know, recent history about, you know, how people would interject these uh, partisan amendments, even in the authorization bills, which is, by the way, they couldn't get them passed because they had all these partisan amendments on them. And, you know, Dutch and I both sat down and said, all of that goes away. We're not going to take any of those. If it isn't related to the business of what we're doing, it's not going in there. You know, and fill in the blank, whatever the issue of the, you know, de jour was of the, you know, the war, uh, torture, fill in the blank. You know, and they were just highly partisan amendments designed to either hurt uh, President Bush or President Obama. And my argument was this is not the place to do it. Right. Go out on the House floor, give a speech. You know, listen, I disagreed with President Obama a lot on his foreign policy, and I went out on the House floor and made it clear. But in that space is not the place to do it. And that was my na- next question, because you, the whole time you were Hipsy chair, as a Republican, you had a Democratic president. And we're seeing the possible repercussions of having different parties when it gets to be very partisan in the person who replaced you as Hipsy chair. I'm not going to ask you to say good or bad things about him. You're up to you. But when he was, when Devin Nunes took over from you, his relationship with Obama was not particularly good. You everything I remember and everything I've researched to have this conversation with you, when you were hipsy chair, you worked very closely with the White House mm-hmm. and got a lot of really good things done during that yes. time. And even when there were things like disagreements about whether mass surveillance or other things like that, using whatever words you want to use, that's the word that popped in my head. You might not call <laughs> it that. But things like you know cyber and other things where there were disagreements, there wasn't a screaming match about it. It was a let's have a conversation, let's make this work. I don't want to ask the basic question of how did you make that happen, but really, how did you make that happen? Because you don't, it's, it's only a couple of years later, but in the, the current political climate, it's unfathomable to think of that relationship happening yeah. today. I just believe if you give professionalism, you'll get professionalism. And uh, I wanted an outcome that was good for the United States. I didn't care who the president was. Um, we had certain activities that are really sensitive and candidly dangerous and you know in a covert action by its very definition if it's exposed it's not good for the country somebody might lose their lives all of those all of that was still going on no matter who's the president is and i felt it was because they closed the doors and there's only a few of us that get access to that information and it's our job to be the public oversight of these activities my argument wasn't hey i'm not gonna argue and fight with you over some inane thing. I will push back on a policy issue as hard as and as much as I can. And by the way, we won some with the Obama administration and I lost some. But it was never my place to take that very classified, sensitive stuff that is really, and, and the intel officers and agents who are working on behalf of securing the United States and then make it a political issue. I just think that's mm-hmm. a terrible way to do business, and I just wasn't going to do it. And, you know, listen, I, did I take arrows from my own party sometimes for doing it? You, yep, I, absolutely. Did Dutch take arrows from his party sometimes? Absolutely. But we bonded through that process, and I think we had a better product. I think America, our intelligence services functioned better when we operated in the way that we did. And we, we got to where they would pick up the phone and call us and say, oops, you know, clean up on aisle nine, <laughs> versus us having to find it in the course of normal oversight. Yeah. We would bring them up and say, yep, that's bad. How are we, what's, let's work through how we're mitigating it, how are we fixing it, what's gonna, how are we gonna do this so it doesn't happen again? None of us ran out to the, you know, the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post and said, oh my God, you're not gonna believe what just happened. Because it wasn't good. I mean, it wasn't people were, weren't doing it uh, maliciously, it's just the nature of the business. So not every operation goes the way you want it to. Right. And so we provided that support and the oversight that I think Americans would be proud of. We didn't give them a break. We didn't, you know, we hauled them in. You know, we had some uncomfortable meetings, both Dutch and I, with these folks. And, and yeah, that's the way it's supposed to work. Actually, one of the directors called it the uh, Rogers wire brush treatment <laughs> that he could do without. Um, and, you know, at the same time, we were still working with them and trying to help them and do things. It's right. just that that's the way I looked at 
my role as chairman and Dutch agreed with that uh, and we were good partners in that process. I'm going to ask you about several major intelligence stories that happened while you were chair and, and our audience will understand if you have to say you can only say so much about these things. They're certainly well versed in that idea. Um, the bin Laden raid. So this happens very soon after you become chair of HIPSI. How much conversation was there as the chair of HIPSI into the decision? I, I know President Obama had the ultimate final decision made, mm. but as that year, basically, you know, I, nine months from when the Abbottabad complex had been ID'd as potentially where bin Laden was to when the raid was finally ordered, how much was were you involved? How much was Hipsy involved? What conversation between the White House and Congress happening during that time? So I had a very good working relationship with the director at that time, Leon Panetta, uh, an exceptionally good relationship. And so right after I was sworn in as chairman, uh, he invited uh, uh, Dutch and myself, uh, and we went through everything. And so this would have been January of the year of which he was uh, – I think it was 2012, right? Do I have that? 2011. 2011. Yeah, so January 2011, 2011. versus like May. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, so it was January and then May yeah. was when the operation happened. And so they briefed us on where we are, and, and it was only the two of us. Mm -hmm. So we agreed that we would keep it to the two of us just because it was so incredibly sensitive. Um, and, you know, we went through the information. We went through the mock-ups of the area, all of it. And you could see even between January and May – the acuity, the picture was getting better and better and better and better. So the, by, by the time May got there, it was, there wasn't a lot of folks saying it wasn't him. Um, and, you know, I thought this was a, uh, you know, those are, it was a, would, would have been considered a covert action mission. It was something that we probably needed some oversight on. Uh, and I thought the way that Leon handled it, Leon Panetta, director, handled it was exceptional. And he knew that because he had he knew who we were. He saw how Dutch and I uh, had gotten along before. He knew our work on the committee before and believed that he could trust us with that information. And I think, to me, that was uh, the right way to handle it. And, and it was important because afterward, you had another uh, kind of narrative out there supporting all of the decisions, all of the information. And had it gone wrong, I would have been standing at the microphone saying, I, I absolutely believe this was the right thing to right. do as well. And I would have been a Republican chairman with a Democrat president. I believe it was the right decision to do it. And so I thought that was smart because, you know, afterward you got you have to go through it all before, before you understand if it's the right decision. I was part of it. So was Dutch part of it. We both believed it was the right thing to do. Let me ask you, as a former FBI agent, someone who focused on the Constitution, law and order, there was another raid, or lack of a better word, uh, a, a judicial killing uh, later in 2011, and that's Anwar al-Awlaki, who was the American member of al-Qaeda, uh, who the CIA won't acknowledge they, they used armed drones, but somehow he magically got killed with a Hellfire missile from a drone. Um, and there, of course, has been a lot of back and forth, uh, including from Eric Holder, the Attorney General, and the White House, and others, about calling for the execution of an American citizen without a trial, without some would argue due process. How much did that kind of make you step back and think about that process or lack of, or was there one or anything that you can possibly talk about the Alaki? Yeah, I, 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 so I'll talk about in general what has been widely, I think, reported. And even the, the Obama administration subsequent to that came out and said, okay, we want to be more transparent. Yeah. And I can say that... Uh, in that in that particular program, I reviewed every instance uh, of a case where there was some kinetic strike engaged, and I think people would uh, Americans would want this to happen. They want that extra oversight. In this particular case, it was very unusual. So you had a case where you had an operational terrorist, meaning. He was actively conducting and planning operations to targeting the United States. If you recall at the time, he was encouraging uh, different ways of which to get bombs on airplanes right. and actively researching, developing, and recruiting people to carry out attacks. This was not, eh, he's a bad guy. We ought to go get him. It was, I mean, it was pretty clear. He had already renounced his citizenship on more than one occasion. Yeah pledged support for a terrorist organization that was in uh, war with the United States. 
And so we went back, I looked back at it and said, you know, there's got to be case law, and there's plenty of it. In World War One and World War Two, we had the same problem, where American citizens either wittingly or unwittingly ended up fighting on enemy militaries, right? They went back to visit their family, and the next thing you know, they're in the German army. Right. Um, and so that doesn't mean and they were American citizens. So if you found out that one of them was in that unit, do you stop shooting? No, you don't. Um, and that was determination in case law. doesn't count. Uh, you made your choice. You're, you're, for the interests of the broader scope of Americans, we're okay. I, so I felt it was limited. It was, uh, there was all of these components. It was an operational tempo to it. He was clearly targeting the United States. All the other options of capture and return, none of that was good. Right. And so I supported the, the president uh, after that, and it was publicly. I, I didn't back away from it because I thought it was the right course of action for the defense of the United States of America. And, you know, we ended up getting in fights later about how they were mangling the process on how things like that may or may not be authorized. Right. Well, I, we ended up in a big tussle over that uh, later on. But, I, you know, it was important for me to support the president because I supported it when the lights and the cameras were on. Right. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. about something that makes everyone just kind of shiver a little bit uh, because it just won't go away and that's Benghazi hmm. where where do you come down on that um, the broader sense of uh, you have the intelligence community saying one thing you have including the White House the White House is in the intelligence community are in somewhat lockstep on their re, you know response to the Benghazi tragedy uh, but there are certainly members of a, a political party that I don't think I think there are some true believers there that are not trying to just gain political points. I think there are people who actually believe that there was a screw-up when it came to what happened in Benghazi. Uh, is there a happy medium there? Because everyone's just gone to their corners on this one. I mean, they still are. We, you know, It goes away for a little while, and then somebody brings it back up, yeah. and then it becomes full-blown war again. I, think there, I absolutely think there is a happy medium there. I came out at the time and said it. The problem was, one of the things I believe passionately is that... Uh, in government restraint when it comes to taking people's freedoms, accusing you of crimes, taking your money. I, I just think we need to be really careful. That's why I think, you know, making sure the FBI is performing, which is part of our committee and jurisdiction, yeah, you bet. You better follow the law. Uh, and same with the Congress. You know, nowadays I hear you know, a congressman every other day accuse someone else of committing crimes, and I'm shocking by this because uh, you're a government representative just like everyone else. And you better damn well have proof if you're going to ask, uh, commit somebody, to, uh, you know, accuse somebody of having a crime. So when I set out my investigation, this was, was one of maybe more frustrating points of my time on the committee, is that I had a little slice of that pie, just the intelligence mm -hmm. community. So Armed Services was doing the Department of Defense investigation. The, the State Department piece was done uh, by Ed Royce, who was, do it was the Foreign Affairs Chairman. Right. I had a little slice of it. We were pretty good. Matter of fact, the timeline, all of that timestamp, all of that basic core information about times and calls and all of that came out of our committee and our, my, my investigation. I came to the conclusion in that, uh, and I say I, it was the committee. There were a lot, a lot of people who didn't object to the report who objected when the lights and cameras came on. I found that very interesting. It was a little disappointing to me. But what we did is I wasn't going to say anything that I couldn't substantiate with fact. Right. And so what we determined was there were problems. There were mistakes. 
that got lost in the narrative because once that report came out, everybody said, "Oh, this report exonerates President, uh, you know, or candidate Clinton, or or, or Secretary Clinton." Um, well, if not if you read the report, it didn't. It said they made mistakes along the way, and I didn't think that there was any criminal activity. Right. You know, people were trying to say, "Oh, there was gun running." Well, if there was, I didn't find it. Uh, and by the way, neither did the Benghazi committee right. find it. As <laughs> a matter of fact, the the conclusions outside of the emails, which was out of my jurisdiction, right, the State Department and personal emails of Hillary Clinton, they pretty much agreed with the report of which we found that created the big kerfuffle in the first place because the facts didn't change. And so, I mean, I, I do think they made mistakes. I don't think they were prepared for it. I think that they were very lax in assigning these folks here without uh, the cavalry over the hill in a very dangerous neighborhood. They ignored all of this is in the report, by the way. They ignored reports of Al Qaeda getting stronger in the neighborhood. Uh, you know, in fact, that's why the Brits left. Uh, there was an attack on the British folks. They left, uh, relying on these militias that were street gangs, if not mafia crews, if not you know terrorists themselves uh, for their security. I mean, all of that. And we outlined all of that in the report. Listen, it was bad. It was awful. We had people give their lives in the service of their country. Um, One thing I just didn't care for was that there were a group of people saying that we were were heroes and the the people who are still in the government working today to protect us were cowards and, and creeps. We didn't find that either, by the way. That's one thing. I just I think that stolen valor is is was is inappropriate in any time, and I thought it was horrifically inappropriate in this case. I know the people that were condemned by the people who made this a big public deal, and and God bless them, they they, they were courageous, and we said that in the report. Yeah. But the, the people who uh, you know you made the bad guy who couldn't defend themselves because they're still doing classified work for the government, I j- I had a problem with. Right. And so that created this kind of odd bashing of the heads and then it just took on a life of its own politically and I, for that I, you know I, that was one of the more disappointing time well you well, mentioned that, that it's interesting i, I want to get back to something else but you you'd segued this for me automatically where i want to ask you a little bit the public in oversight and and the problems that we run into where redactions and classifications make things very difficult for the public to really understand what's going on and, and as a response people are able to shape the narrative based on whatever the hell they want to say. Um, I can't say anything to anyone if they say, well, it's classified. I only, I know what it is, so you have to trust me. Mm-hmm. And then in honorable hands, that's one thing. But when there are people who are hitting you over the head with something you know, politically, and they're saying, no, 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 you're just not seeing what I'm seeing because it's classified, or declassifying things in a very particular way in order to push a narrative forward, uh, that seems like even worse than us not knowing anything at all. When you can selectively declassify to back up your political position or your, your opinion or anything else, that is, to me, as bad of, as disinformation what the Russians are doing to us right now. Because it's from our own people that we're supposed to be trusting. Yeah, it's a credibility issue. And so it's hard to look at the Intelligence Committee today and say that there any position that comes out of there is credible, either from the Democrats or the Republicans. I mean, they destroyed their credibility. So everybody comes out and says, you know, I can't tell you what I just heard in this classified briefing, but boy, it doesn't look good for the president of the United States. Well, that's wrong. Or the vice versa. I just had a classified briefing. I can't tell you what's in it, but I think it looks really good for the president of the United States. Same briefing, same set of facts. It just had the the FISA warrant released the Carter Page one, which is redacted everywhere. Released it middle of the afternoon. By an hour later, you had talking head pundits on different networks saying how great this was for the president and this is the the final nail in the Mueller investigation coffin for the president at the exact same moment looking at the exact same document and as Americans I I read it and I said I have no idea what the hell this means because half of it or more than half of it is still redacted I have three quarters so the important things could and as as an intelligence historian I know sometimes the most important thing you're looking for is under that black box or whatever That seems to be really problematic. It is. I, I'm a little surprised that they released it. Um, most of the black uh, marks, uh, the redacted material, 
is what allowed the judge to make the determination right. to, to do it or not do it. So you can't read what's there. And a lot of what's there, by the way, is very boilerplate, happens in every affidavit. You know, I need to identify the Russian Federation as a country that's represented by the, you know, uh, by the diplomatic corps and accepted, blah, blah, blah. All of that's boilerplate. You know, they take that from the other one they did before and they plop that in because mm -hmm. that just tells the – but in every application, it has to be – uh, you have to do that because you, the judge needs to be able to read that one application and understand what you're saying. So they use a lot of this boilerplate. The redacted information, if you notice in the ones where they repeated it, that's where they collected information that allowed them to continue getting these visas, which meant there was something enough there for the judge to look at that and say, wow, that, there's enough there to continue your surveillance of this individual. And so that's all it redacted out. So anybody can, you know, can say, oh, my gosh, there was nothing. The one part in there that I thought was interesting and honked me off, which is a technical term yes. in the intelligence business, uh, is that I, the narrative coming out was that they, the FBI really screwed this up because they did not disclose that it was a political uh, origin of this particular piece of information, and it gets to the dossier, yeah. I guess. And clearly, in the affidavit, they mentioned that this was prepared, uh, by, paid for by a political campaign in research opposition to their opponent. And I thought, well, that's the narrative they've been pushing for three months. And by the way, had that not been in there, I would have been pretty upset with the FBI. Had they not disclosed that to the judge, and I, I've said this publicly, I've said it on TV, if, if they didn't publicly disclose this, that's a problem for the FBI. Well, they did. It was in the afternoon. Right, and, but you, immediately you saw people, this looks terrible for the FBI because, it, and it's just, because people may not read past the headline. They may not sit down and take the time to read the warrant itself. They may be completely confused about FISA, and I think there's a lot of disinformation out there, or just people just don't understand. I, every time I hear FISA is a rubber stamp, it's like mm -hmm. nails on a chalkboard. Yeah. Because people don't understand the process, the sometimes year process that goes before you get that final rubber stamp, the back and forth, the conversations, the kind of informal change this, do this. And so sure, there's an incredibly high rate, high rate of approval from the FISA courts, but no one's really seeing the back story that goes into that. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So as an FBI agent, we did the criminal version of those, which is called a Title III, where, and it's, it's an incredibly complicated process. You have to find the sources. You have to prove that, uh, you know, the guy you're going to try to intercept or, uh, or surveil uh, electronically is a bad guy. And you have to be able to show that to the judge in the Africa. Well, that's not just done. You can't come in and go, well, I, you know, I think you know, Vince is a bad guy. Well, let's get a surveillance warrant on him. And that doesn't work. You have to be able to clearly demonstrate over time. That's lots of bits of investigation that may take months, may take years to get an affidavit where it's appropriately developed where the judge will go yes i think you have reached the probable cause standard pretty high standard under the law that you can go surveil these people and you're right you go in and throw it down on the judge's desk and they go mm, it's not enough here you got to come back there's no formal rejection there's right. no none of that uh and so what happens is you got to go back and put more information in there you have to you know or i don't know if that source is reliable you're going to have to do it with another source or whatever and so that happens a lot in these which is why by the time they approve them it looks like well they're 18 applied and you know 17 made it well that's why right because there's this process uh, well and everyone knows the process too it's like you you talked about the the fbi process for getting a, a search warrant or a tap that's probably drilled into you as an FBI agent, in the same way when NSA or whomever is asking for a FISA warrant, they don't even put it informally in front of a FISA judge until they've gone through a very well-known process to get all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. So I, and if it's American citizens, not the NSA, it's the FBI. Right, or the FBI. Yeah. You know. And so they, you know, a lot of those warrants are FBI warrants to the FISA court. Um, and again, it's and the reason it's classified is that information is so sensitive. And in some cases, you're you're not doing it for a criminal prosecution. You're doing it for intelligence collection. And you know, everyone said, "Well, why isn't Carter Page in jail or charged with a crime?" Well, if you read through that thing and painstakingly go through it, you can pretty much determine. And it says very clearly in there, he wasn't doing intelligence collection on behalf of a foreign uh, country. It's not what he was doing. He was doing intelligence activities, meaning he was likely in some way 
uh, dealing with a, an intelligence agent, according to the affidavit, it looks like he knew him to be an intelligence agent who was tasking him to do things. Um, you know, like, you know, go tell the campaign X or tell it Y. We don't know that. That's the redacted part. Right. But they did specify that that's what they were looking at. Well, he may never get charged. But what it shows is that the Russians were using Americans to try to influence the election in some way. Uh, that part I, I gets lost in the debate. And you can't even, it's really nearly impossible to have a rational, reasonable walkthrough without people immediately going to their corners and saying, oh my God, you know, Hillary Clinton didn't win because of Vladimir Putin or the Republicans saying, Russians, what Russians? Do we have Russians? No, we're not Russians to worry about. We don't see Russians. Really. Everything is hot show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there is a medium there. There is a happy medium. And it's two things can happen simultaneously and, and be true is the Russians did everything they possibly could to screw with our election. And Donald Trump and him personally had nothing to do with it. Yes, completely. I, and, and I don't, I don't, neither side wants to even come close to accepting that. And I'm no, the, the listeners know I'm pretty far to the left side of the political spectrum. So I have no love for, for Donald Trump, but it's perfectly possible that he had no idea, no connection, no collusion with both L's, right? Spell it the right way. No collusion working with the Russian government. And yet they still did tons of things to mess with the 2016 election. Completely. But no one seems to want to kind of have that kind of happy medium. Well, and the president conflates yeah. collusion with Russian activity in our elections. They've been at this since the 1960s. Right. So, and, you know, the thing that they, by the way, their polling was no better than American polling. They didn't think Donald Trump was going to win either. What they wanted to do up front was damage somebody that was that they thought was going to be the next president of the United States. Right. They I mean, wanted Clinton to damage the power of them. They wanted her bruised, battered, beaten, right? And I'm a Republican. That offends me like no tomorrow, right? I want to beat the candidate that we're running against because we just have better ideas and America wants us to go this way, not that way. Um, we should never be for this allowing foreign entities to come in and try to beat up, bruise, and embarrass for whatever reason these candidates and that's exactly what the russians were trying to do they wanted you to hate hillary clinton and oh this this uh, trump thing yeah this is good let's see if we can't use him to beat you know he was a kind of a useful tool at yeah. this particular place for them and so some notion that and the president can't separate it he cannot understand that i don't believe they impacted the election as far as turning enough votes to change the game but what they did do is try to pit Americans versus Americans, Christian groups against Muslim groups, uh, white supremacist groups against black activist groups. They wanted chaos. And why? They want to promote around the world that our democracy, America's a bad place. They hate each other. Their democracy doesn't work. You, know, you shouldn't be listening to America. You'd be listening to us. And that's why I was so offended when the president went out and stood next to Vladimir Putin and said, well, it could be the U.S.'s fault that the, the relations are bad. And by the way, those intelligence guys probably don't know what in the hell they're talking about. Holy yeah. mackerel, my head bump came <laughs> off my shoulders. Let's, let's walk through that a little bit. As, you know, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the, what you're perceiving to be the relationship between the White House and the IC. And this can be at multiple levels. Certainly, he has handpicked chiefs at each of these intelligence agencies. I mean, not so much the kind of NRO, NGA, NSA under the, the DOD, but... CIA is his person. Uh, the ODNI is run by his guy. Um, but but how close with all the bashing the IC and with all the I don't believe you for what you've been saying now since the very beginning. Is there a rift there? Is there a schism that's irreparable at the middle management and lower levels, do you think? I think they don't like it. But I will tell you, interesting, uh, you know, uh, knowing the folks that I do in the community. They, f they feel better with the authorities that they have today than they have in a while. And so they feel that they're a little bit uh, able to go out and do things that before they weren't able to go out and do and collect information and do operations and things like that. And I think that's all going on underneath. Yeah. And I think there is a layer of this. And, of course, you know, the public perception of it's not good. When you have – I see numbers moving where, well, maybe I don't trust the FBI or maybe I don't trust the intelligence community. That's bad. Mm -hmm. Bad for America. It's a bad outcome. I do think 
our professionals in the intelligence community are doing exactly what they're supposed to do, get up every day, do their job. I'm going to do my job a little better tomorrow than I do today, and I'm going to make America safe. If they do that, we're going to be just fine. And I think that's what you see happening. Yeah. What I didn't like about it is that we know that Vladimir Putin runs uh, information warfare uh, operations, right? We do. Our 2016 election was a part of that, what he did in Germany and France, and the list is pretty long. When the president says our intelligence isn't all that great and they're working against me to stop the relationship, and then Putin says that, that will be plopped in as some fantastic information that they're going to use to recruit people against us. They're going to go to foreign intelligence services and say, hey, you don't want to work with the CIA guys. Look at this. Their own president thinks they're working against him. You don't want to do that. Why don't you work with us on problem A or problem B? And it was just, I, I'm gonna, I'll be very generous. I think it was absolutely naive to walk into a meeting with no one else in it, empower Vladimir Putin, because I'll guarantee you he was prepared for the meeting. Mm-hmm. He knew the right touch spots. He knew the kinds of things he was going to bring up in the meeting, even though he was going to interpret the way he brought them up later on his own. We empowered him to have the whole disclosure cycle of what happened in that meeting. This guy is a trained KGB officer. He uses this as a part of his information warfare campaign. We just, I mean, that's what drives me crazy. And that lack of preparation, I think, is going to hurt us. Well, you, you, as HIPSI chair, you, have, you had to have had, especially your four years as HIPSI chair, multiple briefings on Vladimir Putin, on who he was, on the mm-hmm. danger that, Ru- a re- you know, a re- kind of a reemerging Russia. I mean, People call them a peer. They have the economy the size of Italy. They're not a peer to the United States, but a wannabe peer trying to come back and reassert their power. What was the assessment of Putin? Go back to when you first joined Hipsy, right? right, During the middle of the Bush administration. Was it evolving? I mean, George Bush very famously said he looked into Putin's soul and saw somebody Mm -hmm. he could work with. Clearly, that was a... Uh, <laughs> this perception of reality. Um, but did you see it change from 2000, mid 2000s through the time that you finished as Hipsy chair? Well, you have to remember, uh, everybody was thinking that the Cold War was over and right. the Russians, who cares about the Russians? Let them work it out. Well, the, the nobody Romney maybe m- mercilessly mocked. We're talking about the Russians being our number one yeah. national security threat yeah. in 2012. Is Yeah. But in what people didn't realize, and by the way, in the intelligence services reacted to that themselves. I mean, you couldn't hardly find a Russian specialist anymore that was not hiding under their desk somewhere, hoping nobody found him. And, you know, that needed to change, had to change. So by the time we got to 2010, <laughs> interesting, we were a little ahead of the curve only because I think we were interested in it. And I say we, Dutch Ruppersberger, the congressman from Maryland, hey, we, we need to reengage on the strategic threats here. China, absolutely kicking our fannies right now. They are very, very aggressive in the espionage game, both human and cyber. Uh, but the Russians are still out there, and we watch their activities. And, you know, they're the ones that are still using honeypot techniques and and compromise. You know, they yes, they want to compromise people, and they will use it against you. They're mean. They're just, they're, that's the old KGB meanness, and it just, that stink just does never wore off. And I think Putin knows that, right? So he enjoys those tactics Remember in 2010, we had the uh, ghost stories, right? So the Russian illegals and everyone, oh, isn't that funny? That wasn't very good. Uh, How terrible. It it may have been the worst thing because everyone looked at the SVR and said, boy, are they amateur hour? Where did the KGB go? These guys are clowns, Nana Chapman and everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they made some classic mistakes, but what it told you in my mind, what people weren't realized, they didn't really want, they were willing to go 50 years or 40 years without some major break and coup. But what they were doing is building legacies for their kids. Yep. Their kids would have been grown up as Murphys who are you know, in good standing and know these people in think tanks and had a connection to get an interview at the CIA or the FBI. You think about how dangerous that really was. They made a few mistakes. And by the way, we wouldn't have gotten that had we not had someone tell us about it, meaning the CIA did something good, right? They recruited somebody and said, oh, by the way, you has a huge problem brewing in the United States. So it looks buffoonery now yeah. because we got to listen to it. Had you not listened to any of that and it had been successful, right, if we didn't know, that's what I, I caution people about. It may have been, we wouldn't have the patience in the United States to put an operation that may go 20 years without getting one solid piece of information.
Something we had talked about earlier where you had mentioned the idea you can say whatever you want to and we can edit it out, certainly, or not. Um, you, you've not certainly crossed any boundaries that you shouldn't have. Um, talk about the White House IC relationship. You talked about the, kind of the rank and file. I'm wondering if some of the stuff we see in public is political window dressing because as there are still rallies going up with locker up chants, but Mike Pompeo met with Hillary Clinton when he became Secretary of State to have a long kind of conversation about how to be secretary of state and as much as donald trump listens to listens to the idea of giving mike mcfall over to the russians the former russian ambassador he was at the white house yesterday to talk to fiona hill who is the top russia expert in the national security council there's obviously business still taking place at levels where from the public perception they would be amazed mike pompeo sitting down with hillary clinton right i mean that's mm-hmm. that's that she's the evil witch from a certain perspective. Is that happening across the board? Is that- I think it is. I think more than people realize, and that's the professionalism of the IC community engaging uh, in ways that, that is smart to do. And so remember, these people are careerists, a lot of them, Ian McFall, who is you know, a pretty serious diplomat and, and has done really good things. And so having those conversations, even where I think, uh, I mean, clearly the president wasn't prepared for the summit. I mean, he showed up and wung it and bad idea. So I think his reactions aren't always derailing the kinds of activities that normally happen Republican-Democrat in the IC. And I think that's good. You know, this is the public beatings, not helpful. The, you know, I, I argue not being prepared for these meetings, not helpful, Mr. President. Could you please do a little homework? Um, I think you'd have a much better appreciation of the sensitivities and yeah. how he's going to try to work you in that meeting. But again, I think most of the things that are happening on a day-to-day basis, they're trying to get it right, and they're charged with getting it right, right. and I think that's what their effort is. You think it's true on the international level, too? Like, the NATO summit was not necessarily something we want to remember, but do you think the... I think that one left the mark. <laughs> I do. You, you think that they did? You don't think there's repair? Like uh, I think Jim people Mattis are going people, they're trying, yeah. but you know when the uh, that is such a presidentially driven yeah. relationship that I do think when you do that it it, it leaves a mark, and you know, I think it's going to take a little bit. And I've been overseas and talked to some folks, and you know they're they're you know got their feelings hurt and all of those things, right? And so that takes a little repair work. I don't think they're willing to walk away from America yet. Uh, I just don't. Um, you know, they can see our own political strife, in, internal strife here. And so I don't think they're walking away. But, I, you know, that does leave a mark. If they, the, you know, for people who think they're doing all the right things, to be told that you're, you know, less than worthless. Well, the back-to-back with the Putin summit, problematic. And then there was the interview where Montenegro, why would we go to war over Montenegro? Like, well, that's... That's, that's the, that's that's the to me. point I, of Article 5. Well, right. And the only time Article 5 has ever been put into practice was after 9-11, right? This is an, you know... And so it, it, as an old Cold Warrior and as someone uh, such as yourself and, and me who grew up kind of during that time period, um, to kind of shivered me timbers a little bit. I was just like, what just happened? It was tough. Well, and again, that is someone who's not prepared to answer the question. You know, I mean, it would have been very if you're prepared and you don't know the depth of it, you could just as easily said, hey, listen, I'm going to support Article five. Um, and that was clearly they were baiting the president to, to get to a place to say something a little bit outrageous yeah. in my sense. You know, my son serves in the military. And you know what? If Article 5 is implemented, I would expect him to show up and do his bit uh, because it's in the U.S. interests and his future interests and all of those things. So this notion, well, should my son have to fight for Montenegro? You know, is that the question you really want to ask? Right. I mean, is that the purpose of this? The whole the whole benefit of that is continue to build democracies that get along with the United States and have values that are shared with us, including economic, following the economic rules of, of international trade. All of that's good. So let me ask you about two more questions um, that and then we'll let you guys we could talk all day because this is fascinating and it's fun to get in the weeds with you. But recently there have been. Uh, Former, former directors of intelligence agencies, very outspoken ones, including, uh, in full disclosure, a couple of people who are directly associated with the Spy Museum, people like Michael Hayden uh, and others, who have been critical of the president, and now there has been a kind of a backlash against that with a conversation about potentially stripping them of their security clearance. Uh, some of them don't even have security clearance anymore, so mm. you can strip all the way you want to. There's none to strip. But just this idea of 
using security clearance, which should be somewhat sacrosanct as a political tool, a, a kind of a, a bat to beat your kind of rivals, people being critical of you. Uh, I've heard the word petty being thrown out. Um, it seems more than that to me. Well, I mean, I, I think for the president to spend two seconds trying to worry about this is beneath the office of the president of the United States. I, it, just, it just defies logic to me. And to politicize this piece of it, the, the, the security clearances, you know, these folks have decades and decades of good service to the United States of America. Um, it, it just actually I think it does the opposite of what he thinks it's going to do he's not showing that he's big and uh, you know important it, it shows to me that he's small and petty now I say that but I will say this I when I heard John Brennan uh, use the word that uh, the treason when I heard him say that Putin is in his pocket and he says this as the former CIA director right. I thought that was a, a bridge too far he should have not done that I think because you had those jobs, you have to be more deliberative. Doesn't mean you don't you have your opinion. Doesn't mean you have to love whoever the president is. Doesn't mean you disagree with their policies. All of that to me is fair game. That to me was a bridge too far because it inferred, well, you must you're you know all this classified information. Right. You must know something. And oh my gosh, the guy. I think that's wrong. I think that's an abuse of those positions. And I. I wish you hadn't done it. It's somewhat counterproductive, too, because if you want to feed into the narrative of the deep state or that the intelligence community is out to get you. This is the way to do it. Right. What better way than having the former CIA director start yelling crimes and misdemeanors and treason at you? I, and I thought when, when Comey did the same through his tweets right when, when he first got out, I, and I said this publicly, I thought that was wrong. He needed a, yes, I get it. It completely stinks. Um, and I didn't think it was fair the way they handled it. I thought it was less than courageous the way he han the president handled your, your dismissal. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, you're the FBI director. You have to be bigger than that. And you know, it doesn't mean you can have some other opinions. But it just all seems small and petty. And stop it. I, you know, I, I I think this guy is this weird vortex that's sucking these pe really good smart people <laughs> into his vortex of saying really dumb things. Like, be the bigger person. Be more deliberative. Um, have your opinion, please, but don't do it in a way that is that sharp right. acerbic, inferring that I know this is that debate we had earlier. I know classified information right. you're going to have to. And I just think that it's not fair to the people who are still working in those businesses. And so, I, you know, that I, president should have not even wasted th three and a half yeah. seconds on this. But I wish these folks would be a little more deliberative in the statements that they make. What years were you in the FBI? I was in the I went in in 1980. Eight and got out in 1994. Okay, so let me ask you about uh, another former FBI director since we were just talking about Comey, uh, Bob Mueller. Mm -hmm. And not a soul on the planet seems to know what the hell is going on inside the Mueller investigation, which is such a wonderful change yeah. from normal Washington. So I'm not gonna ask you about that because y you can pretend to know, but no one does. Um, but I wanna talk to, I wanna ask you about him as a man, right? I mean, kind of as, uh, not out if he's, honorable or courageous you can certainly comment on that but as a kind of a hard-nosed prosecutor a no bs fbi agent because that's my perception of him and so your background at, at flipping mob informants to kind of take down mm -hmm. the mob i feel like they're probably harder to flip than some of these lily white uh you know former political campaign strategists that Mueller is taking on right now yeah and i'm I have to tell you, if the, if the Trump Trump was apparently upset that Cohen had turned or appears to be yeah. cooperating, and he said to one of his people that he was apparently concerned about about this. But I, I, my whole thing is, listen, if Sammy the Bull Gravano, who killed I don't know a couple of dozen people, uh, ended up flipping on John Gotti uh, to avoid a few days in jail. You don't think these guys are going to flip? I mean, they're going to flip like a cheap wedding chair, right? They're going to fold immediately. And so, I, you know, I think you're going to see more of that. Bob Mueller is, you know, I, Bob Mueller and I got along great. Uh, we fought like, uh, you know, two bulls in the field on a couple of FBI issues. But it was never personal. Uh, it was always professional. It got a little heated. But uh, I respect the guy to this day. He's just very hard-nosed. He's a little stubborn, mm -hmm. uh, but very hard-nosed uh, on what he believes. And I think 
that you're going to see that. I think you're not going to see a guy that's going to make up things that aren't there. He's not going to try to influence in a way that it shouldn't be. Um, that's why I keep telling people, you, be ready. You, you know, for those people who are counting on, right. you know, he's going to come out and tell, say that the president is all the things you think he is. He, he may come out and say, well, here's the things we did find. None of it relates to collusion with the Russians. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me a bit. Matter of fact, I think, I think it's really going to be hard to show that the president himself colluded with the Russians. Could have some of his staff made bad decisions? We're already seeing that's right. the case. Uh, and those folks are going to have you know, penalties. They're going to go to jail to, 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 to prove that point. And so, I, you know, I think he's a good man. He's an honorable man. I mean, you look at his military record. The guy is uh, no, slack, no slacker there. As the FBI director, I said I worked with him mm-hmm. uh, for the majority of time that he was there. Uh, great guy, honest shooter. If we disagreed, both of us knew we were in, in disagreement. We had no shortage of, of expressing ourselves about that. Uh, but I never walked away without respecting him as a person well, and a professional. And, and to me, that that really matters because I think that both sides, I don't care where you're coming down on, what your political persuasion is, this special investigation needs to be completely above the board and believable no matter what it is. Completely. And I think that's they've somewhat accomplished that, but I think there are there are certainly forces out there who are trying to undercut this before it even happens, which I think is very problematic because this could have been the final word, right? In either way, right? You, you need you need some uh, arbiter of the truth here. Yeah. And, you know, I think you'll probably get that out of the Mueller investigation. Now everything is tainted by politics. You almost can't go into a coffee shop and have a normal conversation about this, yeah. as we talked about earlier, that, you know, maybe the guy what didn't do it, but maybe some of his people tried to, to, to do it. Maybe they didn't commit crimes, but they were making really bad decisions, right? They had a lot of neophytes. They had a lot of hangers-on on that campaign committee that you kind of look, you know, a little jaundice in the eye like really you're the what um and those people apparently made some mistakes already you know we have five guilty pleas or whatever it is and so i don't know i think this it has to be but i worry that if the goal is to make sure that the fbi is not a credible witness at the end of the day we will do far more destruction to our ability in this country to bring national security from shore to you know shore to shore and you know shining sea to shining sea than just about anything. So it's not hard to find you on TV if there's a major breaking intelligence story. You can uh-huh. find you lots of places. But is there anything that people, if they want to hear you talk more about, you know, uh, you know what you do, your career or anything like that, that they can they can look at? I know you've done radio in the past and obviously yeah. the CNN Declassified. What's coming up? Well, we have season three of Declassified. Yeah. And I, it's another eight episodes of really compelling uh, intel stories. I think people are going to love it. Well, when it goes on the air, we don't know just yet because it's a CNN product, and with all the news cycle right, right now, we're <laughs> we're waiting for our start date. Uh, but we finished up eight episodes, really, really good stuff. Uh, and I would go on, you know, if you want to have a good feeling about the intelligence community, uh, Declassified is on Hulu. Yeah, you can go back and watch the first two seasons. Yeah, yeah and I, I highly recommend people do it because it's not about Mike Rogers; it's really about the people right. who did the cases. Um, and it's a fun way to go through and see their trials and their tribulations. And they get some emotional in there, too, where these folks break a case and they've been on it their whole lives. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's, I think it's a powerful, powerful thing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here today. We truly appreciate Again, we're going to have to have you back at some point because we could talk a long time about getting in the weeds about this. Uh, so we really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And hey, good luck on the museum. I'm excited to see the new place. Absolutely. Yeah. We need all the luck we can get, so we're happy <laughs> to have it. Thank you.